Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Shared Ireland podcast series. Today our guest hails from County Tipperary. He's a PhD student and previously has penned two articles for the Shared Ireland blog series. It gives Shared Ireland great pleasure to welcome along Mr. Kieran Harahill. Welcome Kieran. how are you? Thanks, great, uh, great for having me on, thanks. Kieran, how is life treating you down in County Tipperary? And I suppose, how has COVID and lockdown affected you? Yeah, so I think it was around this time last year when the COVID hit, I moved home from Tipperary. So uh, I was based in Galway doing my PhD from September 2019 to March, but uh, I'm back home now. So I think the parents are happy enough to have me back anyway. <laughs> you, ha- you haven't at them out of house and home yet, no? Not yet anyway, but I'd say it could be here for a bit longer, so hopefully that won't come anyway. <laughs> Indeed. Kieran, um, I'm not too sure if you've listened to any of our previous podcasts, but what we like to do at the start, I suppose for the benefit of, of our listeners and anybody that doesn't know you, is to give them a flavour about who you are as an, indiver- an individual, a little bit about your early years and family background, so in your own time, Kieran. Yeah, no worries at all. So I'm from Tipperary, uh, from a farm just beyond Templemore, and I'm a PhD researcher. So before doing this, uh, I, my undergraduate degree in geography and politics in UCD with a bit of Irish history thrown in. And then I did my master's degree in environment policy. So I graduated from that in 2018. And since then, I've been working on my PhD, which has been on a topic called the bioeconomy. So there's a big connection between uh, environment policy and agriculture within that. So I suppose before that, since I was very young, I've always had a, a massive interest in geography and Irish history particularly. So I think that's really what led me into I suppose the course I studied, and it's funny enough, actually, this day five years ago, I was in New York uh, taking part in something called the Model United Nations with UCD. So that was a focus on, I suppose, like the actual United Nations. So I was at the headquarters. So I've always had a, a really big interest in environment policy. And I think that's, I guess, spread to other areas of policy as well, particularly when you look at aspects concerning the island of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Very good, very good. Kieran, as someone born in Tipperary, uh, and this is a bit of a triple barrel question, what's yeah. your perspective on the north of Ireland? And I, and I guess what I mean, what's your image of us? And how do we, and I suppose our political representatives, come across to you and the people living in the Republic, do you think? Yeah, so I guess this is something that I think could be very different for someone my age compared to, I suppose, older generations. What what, so, what age are you, Kieran? just again? Uh, yeah, so I'm 25. So <laughs> I was born in 1996, and the year after that, Mary McAleese became president. Oh. So from my earliest, I suppose, my earliest memories to the age of 15, you had a northern woman who was president of Ireland. So mm-hmm. I think... Maybe for past generations, there might have been a certain image of, you know, politicians from the North, whereas I think for people my age, seeing someone from the North in one of the most influential roles in Irish society, I think the impact that had was it didn't make the North seem something, you know, I suppose to distance oneself from maybe in the past when it could be a case where you look at the news each evening and you'd see bad news about unfortunate events happening in the north mm-hmm. for people my age 
that was never really an issue. So I suppose it's when you get a little bit older, you might, I guess, learn more about history and what things happened. And I guess that kind of comes to today where I guess there's always that image of Northern politics being, you know, one camp versus another camp. Being, being divisive, potentially. Exactly, exactly. And I think sometimes maybe it does flow over to politics in the South in terms of maybe sometimes when you hear the North being mentioned in a political debate, it, it's maybe sometimes you as a bass to hit another politician in terms of, uh, I suppose the obvious example of that would be if Sinn Féin were questioning Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil on a policy issue, and then the party in return would say, well, things aren't, you know, perfect in the North. So I suppose that's one aspect, I suppose, of certain politics, which I think is a little bit disingenuous in terms of there might be, the, I guess, the best concerns of people in the North at heart, whereas the North is seen as something which can be used as a means of, I guess, arguing against a case being made by an opponent. Mm-hmm. No, no. the reason why I asked you that question is because, you know, uh, coming from the North myself, and, and I suppose we all can be guilty of this at times, is, you know, maybe not expanding our horizons a little bit and looking elsewhere and trying to, trying to, you know, view things from somebody else's lens. And and I suppose, you know, I've been thinking about this recently. Have we got an image problem here? You know, do, do we need to sell ourselves in a more professional manner? I suppose, you know. Yeah, I guess it's a really good question because I guess when you look, for example, um, in politics in the South, and I suppose politics in Britain, even where there is, you know, a national government, so there is a national opposition and a national government, whereas mm-hmm. in, in the North there is obviously a coalition, mandatory coalition, so I guess it is one of those aspects whereby uh, there is a difficulty in terms of if you're not in favour of, you know, one party or you prefer another party to be in government, it can be difficult because there's mandatory coalition, so I think one example of that would be, I think there was a previous uh, DUP Minister for the Environment who uh, I think was a bit of a climate denier. So Mm. I think if that's the case, it can be difficult for politics maybe in the North. And I suppose this is someone from a Southern perspective who doesn't have the lived experience of politics or living in the North. Mm -hmm. I guess sometimes it can be difficult to have a real coherent government message if you've got so many... I get different viewpoints around the cabinet table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, well, I suppose, you know, one, one of the, the things that, that you know, kind of maybe bothers me is that, you know, if we are looking to, I suppose, sell ourselves, as in sell six counties in, in the 32 counties of Ireland, um, and we're looking, you know, people in the 26 counties to vote yes in any future constitutional vote, you know, yeah. um, I suppose that's the angle that I'm looking at it is, is that, you know, are we an attractive option for for somebody yeah. for somebody living in County Tipperary like yourself? Um, which leads me on, I suppose, <clears throat> to, to my next question. What are the main apprehensions people in the Republic would have about unity, do you think? Now, that's only one aspect of it, the one that I'm only after outlining, but I'm sure maybe you've got others. Yeah, so I guess, I mean, I guess it's quite similar to Brexit in terms of the big question is what does unity look like? So one of the, I suppose, one of the primary 
objections that people would make is, well, how much would it cost? Is this going to hit my pocket? I suppose one aspect in terms of planning unity would be that there has to be a lot of, I suppose, enhancements to public services in the South. If we are to convince people like yourself in the North to vote for unity, mm-hmm. I think it's one aspect in terms of there needs to be actual improvements within the South before there can actually be a border pool. Because if it's a scenario where you look at the big issues in the South at the minute, I suppose, excluding COVID, of course, I suppose prior to COVID, housing and healthcare were the obvious big factors mm-hmm. in political discussions. So if it's a case whereby the healthcare system in the South isn't you know, functional, if it's very expensive, <clears throat> if it's that housing is also very expensive, I think those are the aspects which need to be improved before there can be a referendum. But I think coming back to the apprehension that people in the South might have, I suppose, uh, like the, the taxation, the finance side of things, of how much the cost, that would be you know, a massive factor. As you mentioned there, the politics of the North in terms of, I suppose, as I mentioned beforehand, when the North is often seen as something, you know, policies aren't good enough in the North, so that's one reason why we should keep one party out of government in the South. I think, in a sense, it's the uncertainty. And as you mentioned there, when people haven't got, I suppose, the clearest uh, awareness of how like, society or politics works in the North, I think that can also be an issue in terms of just people are unsure about what unity would look like in practice. So I think that's you know, one aspect where there needs to be a clear... Uh, I suppose, a clear vision of what the United Ireland would look like before there is ever a vote on it. Mm-hmm. You, you touched on health care in there. And, and yeah. I think I think everybody that is, you know, somewhat familiar with the health system, both north and south, would, would have to agree that none of the two systems uh, are perfect, far from it. Uh, both of them are underfunded, understaffed, um, not enough resources being given. So, you know... Um, any conversations that we've been having with with people, you know, it is, you know, I suppose health is number one in everyone's mind. Um, how would it be um funded? How how would it be in any new Ireland like so? So you know, there there's a lot of detailed plan and there's a lot of detailed conversations. And as you rightfully say, you know, there has to be funding there to ensure that that we're entering into a better system as opposed to just swapping a broken system for an equally broken system. Absolutely, definitely. Um, Kieran, unity, I suppose, should be a win-win for everyone. In your opinion, how could the republic gain from a successful? unity referendum so i suppose what i mean is you know currently you know what what do you think would benefit you in your life if there was a border poll tomorrow morning and the majority of people voted yes yeah so i guess it kind of draws on what i just mentioned there in terms of actually getting to the position where there can be a border poll there needs to be improvements so I suppose the South and a United Ireland looks attractive to everyone. I suppose in the case of there being a United Ireland, I suppose maybe not so much in Tipperary, but you would imagine for areas around the border, you would hope that the fact that there would be, for example, a single currency, that that would lead to reduced costs and hassle in a sense for, say, if you live in Monaghan and you want to go to Tyrone or one of the bordering counties, 
uh, that you would need two currencies. Mm-hmm. I suppose there would, there would be hope as well, again, with the border counties, when you look at the map of Ireland in terms of infrastructure, that you would hope that the removal of a border would help to, I suppose, increase connections in terms of rail transport would be an obvious example. So you could have a scenario whereby there is a Dublin to Derry rail line, uh, okay. which was goes through Tyrone and Cabin Monaghan. I, I just I just um, read the, uh, last week that um, the the connection, the A five connection, that has been talked about and planned for this oh, number of years, has had another road yeah. um, a bump on the road because of um, potential flooding in certain areas. So again, this this connection between the two jurisdictions, you know, it it's vitally important that there is money and resources pumped into that, um, as you say, because, you know, planning forward, we have to start doing the work now. That's it, exactly. And I suppose there is, I suppose, putting infrastructure in place is great, but there is the possibility then, what can that spur on in terms of making parts of the country which aren't very well connected to, I suppose, the main pieces of like Dublin and Belfast, that that can help create new opportunities and that can help to spur on your know, rural economic growth, which can then pass place less pressure on the major urban centres in terms of aspects like housing and can help to keep population in more rural areas and help to support communities. So I think that would be one of the big draws. I suppose one aspect which I think could be very beneficial, and I suppose this really relates to how a united ireland wouldn't just be a case whereby it's the six counties joining the 26 and that's it but i think one aspect which i think could be very important is maybe reforming local governments mm-hmm. i suppose uh, at the minute particularly i suppose in the south when you look at certain rural independents i think uh, there's the real feeling that dublin holds all the power and yeah. dublin gets everything whereas rural areas get nothing and i think to some extent that kind of uh, relates to certain fears perhaps that members of the unionist community might have that Dublin would control everything and the North would be left on its own. I think that's one area whereby if it was a case, I know um, there's been arguments for the establishment of regional assemblies, for example. I don't know if that would be the best approach to take because if you're someone from Donegal or you're someone from Kerry and certain powers are given to Belfast or Cork, would you still feel that your voices are being heard? Mm -hmm. Whereby if it was a case that local uh, authorities like the county council had more autonomy and revenue ability could that then result in people feeling that i suppose their vote and their voice at that local level mm-hmm. that that had more of an influence rather than it just being dependent on the national level because i think that's one aspect which i think could be very beneficial i think to allay some of the fears that unionists might have in terms of the united ireland but i think it could also help to make sure that people in the south also feel that politics is working like the big question for that would be how much would local governments reform cost and how much resources would be in place but i think that that's one area whereby a united ireland isn't just more of the same but there is more structural change overall absolutely it, it has to benefit us up 100 percent, and i suppose that's why you know a lot of people are saying you know in any new ireland the retention of stormont you know is a very likely scenario um breaking it down into a more local local form of government tell me this kieran from where you currently are living how far do you have to travel to access your local train network 
unfortunate here in Tipperary because we're almost halfway between Cork and Dublin, so I'd be 15 minutes from Templemore and uh, another 20 minutes from Tarlis. So I suppose to that extent, I'm very lucky. But if you look at places, for example, all along the west, so from you know two major urban centres in the west of Ireland, Sligo and Galway, there's no rail connection, and I think. Other areas such as Donegal is the obvious standout example, but also places like Captain Monaghan and Fermanagh and Tyrone, mm-hmm. whereby if you could have a scenario where uh, there is a train from Belfast through to Sligo, which cuts across Ulster, mm-hmm. then that would then connect down to Galway. So you'd have all the west connected yeah. and the northwest connected as well. So I guess those are some of the real examples, I suppose from people within the South, whereby if there are investment opportunities that can come from unity, then that's an obvious major step because I suppose at this moment in time, while there are, I suppose, many benefits to Ireland in terms of being a member of the EU, there are still some challenges in terms of the economic, I suppose, the growth being very much located in the major, in the major urban centres, whereas uh, more rural parts of the country feel as if that they're being left behind. Yeah, well, I, I live in County Tyrone and County Tyrone is the largest county in the six counties. And, um, you know, I haven't got a, a real network in this county at all, you know. So, yeah, exactly. yeah, there's many, many different um, um, subjects that we could talk about. But, you know, there's Belfast City Airport uh, or sorry, Belfast International Airport. And it hasn't got a real network for international travellers coming to take them even the basic journey into Belfast, you know, and that's our so-called international airport, you know. So I suppose, you know, at, at, at you know, beggars belief, you know, why has money and investment, you know, from the London government not been pumped in here um, to, you know, kind of promote our tourism section to promote infrastructure, but yet Boris is very eager to build this fantasy bridge between England and and the North here, you know, uh, costing billions. So um, sometimes you have to sit and scratch your head and wonder at the logic of some of these things. But anyway, that's that's a conversation maybe, <laughs> maybe for another day. Kieran, as I said in my introduction, uh, you previously have written two articles for us here in Shared Ireland, so um, thank you very much for that. In, in your first um, article, Kieran, um, you wrote a very comprehensive list of 600 questions, and I suppose they were discussions that may need to be tackled in the event of Unity and I suppose in preparation for Unity. How did you set about compiling this list, Kieran, and what, I suppose, was your inspiration for doing so? So I suppose my main inspiration was that it was very much based on a report uh, published by the Scottish Government in November 2013 called Scotland's Future. So the intention of that document was to essentially, prior to the Scottish independence referendum of 2014, to outline all of the major aspects and the policy questions which uh, the Scottish government intended to answer uh, in terms of what an independent Scotland would look like. Mm -hmm. So I started my uh, undergraduate uh, degree in September of 2014, so it was around the time that referendum was happening. So I suppose I always had a big interest in, I suppose, Scotland and I suppose the similarities in terms of Scotland and Ireland and, of course, the fact that Scotland, every part of Scotland, voted to remain in the European Union once again now the push for Scottish independence and there is the uh, Scottish election taking place in May so it'll be very interesting to see what happens there 
But I remember starting to read that document, I think uh, it was around this time last year, and looking through it and seeing that the questions which were being asked by them, they were very similar to the questions which I thought needed to be asked and to be answered, more importantly, in terms of what uh, Irish unity would look like. Because when you look at the debate surrounding Scottish independence in 2014, there were three major aspects which kept on coming up. So there was the extent to which Scotland would be dependent on North Sea oil and gas. Mm -hmm. There would be the question of what currency would an independent Scotland use? And I suppose to some ironic degree uh, that voting to stay in the UK would be the safest way to stay in the European Union. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I think those, exactly like, I think a bit of an irony now looking back, but I think... Those are the kind of aspects whereby if a referendum on Irish unity is to take place, that there needs to be certainty because we've seen in Britain with Brexit what happens when there is uncertainty with a vote. Um, I mean, Brexit from the election, from the results to the agreements, it was years upon years of uncertainty. I think if there is to be United Ireland, not only you know a united country, but a united and people, people, I think there needs to be certainty in terms of every question that people have before the referendum, they have a clear answer, so it doesn't lead to issues Mm -hmm. upon a successful vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it was it was an absolutely fantastic article and document, and um, it's it it got serious traction when we published it, and just for anyone that may have missed it, we will post a link, uh, to your article that we're discussing here, Kieran, underneath this podcast, and um, you know, even even myself, I'll be honest with you, I have found myself in the weeks and months since. We published your article, going back and reading it and rereading it. And every time that I look at it, I, I find myself nodding my head. <laughs> and what I'm what I'm doing is nodding my head and in agreement to these questions, you know. So um that that's the type of I, I suppose detailed conversations that that needs to start now it's okay doing what we are doing here having a general conversation and i suppose from a shared ireland podcast team's perspective you know we try to have conversations with everyone regardless of their you know political aspirations and but it's it's i suppose up to potentially smarter people like yourself, Kieran, uh, Professor Colin Harvey, um, Ireland's Future, and 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 other people, to to drill down and start analysing what is required, and I suppose more importantly, how will it work and how will it be funded? You know, so um, yeah, very interesting stuff. And again, thanks thanks for your contribution, Kieran. Do you think the establishment of a citizens' assembly would be the best way forward in terms of planning and, I suppose, addressing questions such as the ones that you compiled in your article here? I think definitely, I suppose, when you look again from the South, when you had a citizens' assembly on something like the repeal of the Eighth Amendment, which was, I think, to begin with a very controversial uh, question and it was found that it dealt with it very well and there's been uh, further citizens assemblies on aspects like climate change for example. I think it's something which definitely is needed and I suppose one I suppose argument against this and you know for example I think Dr. Steve Aiken, leader of the Ulster Unionists, has said that you know we are unionists we're not going to partake in any citizens assembly and 
that's fine. I mean, that's perfectly their choice. But I think I wouldn't write it off in terms of something which is very functional and something which can hear the voices of people um, from a unionist background because it's a political assembly, not a citizens' assembly. Or sorry, it's a, a citizens' assembly, not a political assembly. And what I mean by that is. Uh, on the previous podcast you had with uh, Rose Conway Walsh of Sinn Féin, she mentioned how she spoke with um, members of the Ulster Farmers Union uh, at Balmoral and they were opposed to Brexit. And I think that's one example whereby I think there is undoubtedly some farmers in Ulster, in Northern Ireland, from a unionist background who are looking, as you mentioned, to Boris Johnson and, you know, they probably don't trust them. And that might get them starting to think, you know, could we be better off in the United Ireland because we'd have you know, greater access to, I suppose, EU markets and funding from stuff like CAP. You might have a scenario where trade unionists from a unionist background who look to a conservative government in Britain and think, you know, they're probably not going to work in the interest of trade unions. Groups like uh, students and business, there's the uncertainty surrounding, I suppose, the Northern Ireland Protocol and, uh, I suppose, the mismanagement by the conservative governments. I think... That is an example whereby a citizens' assembly can get to hear what their views are. Mm-hmm. That they're not people who have, you know, a political agenda in terms of they're not looking for votes. That they are very much grounded in the realities of daily life. That I think one of the benefits as well is that it can, as you mentioned beforehand, that maybe they don't know a whole lot about, you know, Southern society and mm-hmm. Southern people. So I think it would be an opportunity whereby can meet people from the south they could see that you know we have a genuine concern and we're interested in what their supposed views are mm-hmm. what are their I suppose any fears that they might have about a united ireland and how that can then play into the planning because i suppose bringing it back to the scottish uh, independence referendum i suppose one aspect which i think wasn't i suppose uh, optimal with that process was uh, the plan was to have the vote in September 2014, and if the side were successful, you'd have uh, 18-month negotiations with the Westminster government, and then you'd have the Scottish independence officially in March 2016. And I think one thing that we've seen with Brexit, of course, is when you've got a vote and then you have the negotiations, you don't know what the end of those negotiations, what it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. So I think one aspect in terms of the development of a citizens' assembly, is that it is possible that you get the input from people on all those different aspects. So you have you know, everyday lay people and you've got people who have expertise in aspects like business and government and all that sort. I think then, citizens' assembly, you could then compile a report similar to the Scotland's report. And I think, I suppose it's a question which is, I suppose, very topical and nobody really knows the answer to, of what is the threshold which is required in terms of a Secretary of State from Northern Ireland saying that there is now sufficient evidence for um, support for a border poll being caused. I think if it is a case whereby you compile all this research and compile this report whereby there is clarity as to what a United Ireland would look like and how it would function, I think that is one area whereby it will be difficult for... Secretary of State for Northern Ireland to say that there isn't enough evidence because there would be clear work done and I think perhaps a second step after that report is compiled and it's clear what a United Ireland would look like, I think a second step to that would be similar to what David McCann has mentioned in terms of you put that vote to storm and that seeing that all this work has been done that 
now is the time to essentially put it to the assembly as the representatives of the people to ask, do they believe now is the right time for the Irish and the British government to start discussing what a United Ireland would look like and how long would it take for a border to take place? Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, I suppose, you know, my message to unionism and anyone that would be sceptical about uh, Citizens' Assembly, you know, there there certainly can be no preconceived outcomes before any assembly or negotiation begins. So I, su- I suppose what I'm ultimately saying, you know, you have to enter into any conversation with, with a blank page. And, you know, if unionism or anyone that is opposed to Irish reunification um, you know, wants to air their views on the benefits of the union or on any other subject, that's what the assembly is there for. You know, it doesn't have to just be a solely one, you know, one track conversation. So, you know, th- let's have a conversation. And I suppose, you know, that's the theme of our podcast here. Let's have a conversation. Let, let's let's have a have a, a grown up adult conversation just, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important. And it's I think it's one aspect which is great about this podcast because you've had people like Doug Beatty, people like Jeffrey Donaldson, people like Ian Marshall. I think it's great. And again, another perspective whereby, you know, sometimes you might just see them uh, on, you know, short clips on the news whereby when you've got an hour long or so conversation, it's great to hear how their upbringing and their lived experience how that has influenced their viewpoints as well absolutely yeah and and i suppose you know that's one of our mantras you know we all have to try and 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 walk a mile in someone else's shoes try and see life through their lens and ultimately that will hopefully enable us to to try and i suppose understand where they're coming from and their viewpoint and their their history and their heritage and and you know that then will enable us all around any future negotiating tables to to i suppose you know, not roll over, but to um, appreciate, I suppose, you know, someone else's thinking. Yeah, that's it, absolutely. I think as they're understanding, you know, one of the most important aspects is seeing what are their concerns in terms of, I suppose, what do they view a United Ireland as containing? And if there are aspects which they view negatively or there is a sense of fear, how can you make sure that those fears are eased, that there's nothing to worry about uh, in United Ireland, whereby each individual will be equal, there will be no hierarchy in terms of who is more right or who is more safe. There must be equality must really be central to any aspect of United Ireland. Funny, I was, I was chatting to Professor Pete Sherlow of uh, Liverpool University. Uh, they recently invited the Shared Ireland team to submit different articles for a new um, platform they launched. And, and I suppose um, in one of our private conversations, I, I summed it up for him. Like, you know, if, if his rights as a unionist is not protected in any new shared Ireland, then that means my rights aren't protected either. So, you know, and, and that would be very worrying. So on, unless everyone has the same rights, well, then, you know, this new Ireland simply will not work, you know, because we cannot repeat the mistakes of the last hundred years in the north, you know, so... Um, yeah. Kieran, t- tell me this. What's your thoughts on the Irish government's recently established shared island unit? What, what you know, they, they came out with this, Michael Martin came out with this, um, must be well over a year ago now. And I suppose, you know, we haven't honestly seen any real meat on the bone here. Now, in fairness, the shared island team did receive an email last week inviting us to participate in uh, an upcoming um dialogue with them 
And I think this particular aspect of it is is meant to include civic society. So, uh, you know, we're very appreciative of, of the invitation and um, we welcome it and um, we welcome the initiative. But, you know, for, for me and many others, this simply cannot be, you know, lip service. It, it can't be just tech, a box ticking exercise. You know, there needs to be money, resources put into this. There needs to be a head appointed to it. They need to be active on the ground. They need to be having, I suppose, these conversations that you and I are, are currently having. And, and you know, it, as I say, for just I would be weary, I suppose, and I'd be interested to hear your take on it is that, you know, it's it's not just a PR stunt. Yeah, so I suppose no news is, uh, or, you know, a bit of news is better than no news in terms of there is evidence of some effort being made by the Irish government in terms of placing a greater emphasis on North-South relations. But I suppose just one thing you actually mentioned there about, you know, would there be a head of this shared unit? I suppose one aspect would, I would hope moving forward to see would be the development of a role within the Irish government, uh, a minister of state with special responsibility for reunification. So one aspect which I think would be really important within this role is the unity-proof policy. So in environment policy, there's a concept of climate-proofing whereby any policies which are being introduced, there's a consideration for how uh, this deals with climate change or how climate change could affect this aspect. So I think one area which I think will be very important moving forward for the Irish government for planning unity is to make sure how does the move from a 26-county state to a 32-county state, how does that impact healthcare, for example? How does it impact education in terms of is there integrated education or what is the future for that? So I think that um, that position is similar to the shared island unit being uh, under the Department of the Taoiseach and perhaps being uh, at the cabinet table in terms of meetings, I think that is one aspect which could link in with the establishment of Citizens' Assembly. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be, I suppose, a greater focus at the government level. And while it's extremely positive, I know, I think they had um, an event in terms of uh, young people, you know, born after the Good Friday Agreement, speaking about their experiences as part of the shared island unit, that's mm-hmm. positive. I think they've had aspects in terms of uh, north-south research uh, to do with biodiversity and other environmental matters, so that's positive. But I think, I suppose the hope would be that this kind of lays the foundation in terms of building connections north and south, which could then be, I suppose, further enhanced uh, for the preparing of a citizens' assembly. Uh, But I suppose at this moment in time, you know, prior to this, there was probably very little focus in terms of there being a specific aspect of government which was looking at North-South relations. I think in that sense, it's a positive development, but I think um, it's something to be built on, essentially, that it could lay foundations for the reunification process, but it's a start, at least. Mm-hmm. Okay. Kieran, tell me this. Um a very divisive subject and will become more so as as uh, the months and years trundle on but like there there's a lot of talk about 50 percent plus one um you know if if there is a a yes vote for irish reunification or or a no vote 50 percent plus one you know that 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 yeah. isn't going to be a good enough threshold 
But I suppose, you know, the argument and the most logical and obvious argument is if it's okay for every other constitutional change, namely being Brexit, just as the most recent one, well, then surely it has to be the benchmark for any future constitutional change. Um, Now, in an ideal world, um, as advocates of a new um, shared Ireland, um, we would be hoping that any future border poll would be one in excess of 80%, obviously, because that means you would have, you know, two thirds of the people supporting it, uh, like the Good Friday Agreement. But, you know, we, we still can't be cherry picking, um, you know, what, 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 what's the right and wrong percentage, you know. Um, so from my point of view and, and others, um, and I would be interested to hear yours, what is your stance on the 50 plus one percent in any future referendum? Yeah, I think, as you mentioned there, it would have to be the case because I've seen, for example, I'm sure a lot of people say, you know, well, there needs to be a large majority, there needs to be something like, you know, a two-thirds majority. But I suppose the question with that is, if it's a case whereby it's, you know, 65 yes, 35 no, and 35%, because uh, the yes side were 1% off, that they lose. I think it makes it extremely difficult to say, as you mentioned there, that, you know, Brexit, for example, was 50 plus 1. So if that's okay for Brexit, why can't it be okay for Irish unity? I think that's the main point. But again, as you mentioned, if it's just a case whereby it's 51-49, that will obviously lead to a lot of challenges in terms of, you know, I suppose, division. Uh, I think it's whereby people think that, you know, 51%, that's it, that's all we need. I don't think that's the right approach to take because, as you mentioned, there needs to be overwhelming support, like, I suppose, the view I would have, and it might be, I suppose, difficult to see it coming into being, but I think the aim should be to try and win 50% plus one in every constituency in Ireland so that there is overwhelming support mm-hmm. at basketball level. So that could be, again, extremely challenging in places, for example, like North Down or East Belfast, where I don't think there was any nationalist candidate at the 2019 general election. Mm-hmm. But the argument must be that the, the message put forward for unity must be so strong that evidence must be so clear that people can say that Without a doubt, they are British, and that will never change. They are proud of their heritage. They are proud of their culture. But as you mentioned, uh, in terms of Boris Johnson and his grand plans for bridges and tunnels and whatever, like it's clear that the Westminster government, and Boris Johnson particularly, you've seen the Brexit betrayal on the part of unionists, that Westminster isn't working for any part of Ireland, whether that be people who are nationalists, people who are unionists. I think for me personally, that is one of the biggest arguments for unity, whereby there would no longer be a dependence on what the Conservative Party do, because at the end of the day, and it's one of the big arguments for independence in Scotland, that it doesn't matter how Scotland votes or Wales votes, that if England wants a Conservative government, all of the United Kingdom gets a Conservative government, whereby if there was a United Ireland and there was a proportional representation system, it would be up to coalitions and there would be no one part of Ireland who would decide who becomes the government, that there would be far more, I think, equity in terms of people having their vote and having a voice and being able to say who they believe should uh, run the government for however long the term is.
Absolutely, yeah. We have to win people's hearts and minds, and and win them, and win them. You know, how how is it going to benefit me, you, my next door neighbour? How is it going to benefit us as individuals financially as well? You mentioned there, Kieran, um, just um about you know that there will be no more future dependency on any conservative government, um. I suppose, given because you're from County Tipperary, you know, a lot of people could say that where was Fine Gael, Fine Foyle this past hundred years in regards to the people living in the six counties? You know, there were there was, you know, at times um, we were crying out for help and support, but they were nowhere to be seen. So, you know, I think Leo Varadkar said it a couple of years ago, his vision for any new shared Ireland uh, or call it what you like, is that the constitution in the South would have to be ripped up and, you know, start with a, a blank canvas. And there's something about that, that that really appeals to me, is that as opposed to bolting six counties on to 26 or bolting 26 on to six, um, two broken systems and, and trying to make the best out of it, you know, it, it excites me, uh, giving us the opportunity um, to look at systems around the world, looking at maybe yeah. a Swedish healthcare model, looking at at an Australian, uh, you know, economy, um, and trying to pluck bits out of countries around the world and bring them back here and develop them and nature them and and, and trying to grow them into our our vision of a new Ireland. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I think. I mean, I suppose. There's great hope in terms of what it, a United Ireland could create. I suppose there's no doubt at all that it would be, uh, I suppose, in any way, click the fingers and everything is perfect, that it's something that's going to take work to get right. But I think that is one of the areas, especially when it comes to a citizen's assembly, whereby that work can be done before there's a border poll. So there is clear, uh, I suppose, a clear message. And for any person who is uncertain about could a Unite Ireland, for example, provide quality health service? Could it be a case whereby uh, there's access to education, that there are stronger uh, workers' rights and protections and a greater emphasis on environmental protection, for example? I think that's, I suppose, one of the greatest motivations for a United Ireland, whereby we won't be dependent on what happens in Westminster, but people within Ireland will have the opportunity to have their voices heard. And I suppose that is the great hope of what the future may lie, may hold. Kieran, there's a lot of these questions kind of overlap purely because of the nature of the conversation. So I suppose I'm apologising to our listeners here that saying all they're doing is, is, is asking the same and answering the same question all the time. But for, for the sake of this next question, if you don't mind going with me on this, I, I, yeah. I would ask you to try and place yourself from within a unionist perspective here. And what would be required to convince you of the benefits of unity? Now, I know we've already spoken about if there was a better health system, you know, and, and obviously the, the obvious things like, you know, education and is it going to put more money in our pockets and will our grandchildren get better jobs and stuff? But is there any other aspects from a unionist tradition, if you can try and walk a mile in their shoes for this one, that, that you think, you know, that would convince them of the benefits? It's a tough one, I suppose, because uh, I'm not from a unionist background, so I couldn't speak as to, I suppose, what their, I suppose, maybe issues or uncertainties about a United Ireland could bring. But I suppose it is those aspects in terms of, 
Well, uh, I suppose at this moment in time, I know there's some people who might be uh, of the view that there should be a referendum, say, in two years' time or three time. I suppose the big issue for that is when you look at the South and how can you be certain that, you know, you'll be better uh, than what you've got now. So I know, um, I think the Reverend Kyle Paisley uh, was on your podcast, which provided great insight. And he used a phrase which I thought was very good, was better the devil you know. And mm-hmm. I th- yeah. That could be one what, aspect. Which, which was quite a strange phrase, I thought, coming from a man of the cloth. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think that is one of the, I suppose, one of the major, I suppose, um, I suppose there's the incumbency advantage for unionism in terms of this is the status quo. We know that it's not perfect right now, but it could be better than what a United Ireland could provide. So do you want to take that risk or would you rather keep the services you have currently and you'll be far more secure than going into the unknown? Mm-hmm. One, one of the themes that, that keep occurring when, when I have this conversation with members of the unionist community, now I'm not saying it's, it's number one or anything, but you know it, it's up there. Um, is the erosion or the loss of their British identity in any future um, New Ireland? You know, and now yeah. obviously it's it's not just as simple as um, you know we'll we'll make a national holiday the twelfth of July and you can march up and down the roads, or it's not as simple as flying a Union Jack above a couple of um, council buildings in certain days, you know, the, the, the question goes a lot deeper than that. Like, you know, would their rights as a British citizen, as they view themselves and are absolutely entitled and right to do so, you know, like would their culture, would their heritage, would their way of life, um, you know, would, would that be eroded? And, you know, how can we guarantee them that that would be protected? Because again, there's not many people will maybe say this publicly like I'm about to, but like people people do speak to me and I'm sure speak to you and others from unions tradition and they say that one of their biggest fears potentially moving into the New Ireland would be that they would see Sinn Féin as being the kingmakers in any new um, arrangements. And I suppose, you know, coming from a union's tradition, they would see Sinn Féin as being the bogeyman. And and that is a big fear of theirs. Um, have you any thoughts on that yourself, Kier? Yeah, so I suppose that's a really good question. I suppose it's really interesting when you look, for example, um, I know Doug Beasley has referred to it in his podcast with you, and I suppose not so much connected, uh, but Ian Marshall in his uh, interview, he meant how the tricolour was seen as being anti-everything he was for, being, um, I suppose, a Protestant from South Armagh. I suppose one aspect uh, about that question, uh, and I think it's something that Michelle Gildenu really touched on well, was I think drawing back in from the sudden perspective, we don't hear too much about, um, you know, I suppose the, I suppose the distrust that a lot of people in the national community had towards uh, the RUC, for example. So that's you know one aspect which would have to be, I suppose, very much tailored to in the United Ireland, where people of a unionist background feel, I suppose, safe that they trust all public services and aspects like the police. But I suppose in terms of Sinn Féin itself, I think one point that's important to note is, and we've mentioned it beforehand. Uh, in terms of Boris Johnson, the Conservative government, is that Sinn Féin would be able to have a government on their own within a 32-county republic because it's a proportional system. 
So I think that's one point that's important because they would need to have coalition partners. So I know, for example, one argument that is often made by, say, opponents of Sinn Féin in the South is how can we trust a Sinn Féin Minister for Justice given everything that happens during the Troubles? And I suppose the counter-argument to that point would be if, say, for example, within, within the South at the next general election you see a broad left coalition established, you could have a case whereby Rayla MacDonald is Taoiseach, Pierre Stardy is Minister for Finance, but someone like Catherine Murphy of the Social Democrats is uh, Minister for Justice, Roisin Shortall is uh, Minister for Health, Alan Kelly is Minister for Business, Richard Boyd Barrett is Minister for Social Protection. I suppose one aspect which I'm interested in, I suppose, thinking about is how the party system in Ireland could change with a united Ireland, because I think one aspect which is often uh, brought up, actually, you mentioned how Sinn Féin could be the kingmakers, that unionism perhaps could be the kingmakers mm-hmm. uh, in 32 county parliaments. I suppose one question I'd have, I know Alex Kane, for example, mentioned how there could be uh, a united Ulster party in the case of United Ireland. I wonder, would you see perhaps that party politics in a 32 county Republic could look more like what you have in Europe, for example, whereby I suppose, as Naomi Long mentioned, how you know the border has really dominated Irish politics, both north and south. That with the removal of the border, you could see a case whereby maybe nationalism and unionism are no longer the main drivers of politics, but you have a case whereby it's Labour versus Conservative and, and Liberal. Because I remember looking at an interview with uh, Reverend. Uh, I think Merv Gip, uh, Mervyn Gibson named the Grand Master of the Orange Order. Mm-hmm. He mentioned how in the past he was of the view that there should be uh, one united Ulster Unionist Party, whereas now he's of the view that that isn't the case because unionists could be Labour, they could be Liberal, they could be Conservative. So I suppose the question that would lead to is, if it was a case that there was a 32-county republic, would someone who is an Ulster Unionist, who if they were in England, Wales or Scotland would vote for the Labour Party, would they vote for a, a large catch-all unionist party which is you know, maybe more socially conservative than they would like, or would they vote for a 32-county social democratic and Labour Party? So I think that's one aspect in terms of maybe it could be an unforeseen consequence of the United Ireland whereby you know, politics is no longer dominated by the large parties of Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin, but it could be something similar to what happened in Italy in the mid-90s where the old parties who had dominated the political system pretty much uh, dissolved and were reborn in different titles and different ways. So I think that could be one area where there could be changes that we can't see at the minute in the United Ireland. Well, the first thing I have to say in response to that, Kieran, is <clears throat> I'm both shocked and very impressed at your extensive knowledge of all our previous podcast podcast <laughs> guests. My God, um, it's it's actually made me a little bit nervous now that, wow, people actually do listen to this. <laughs> I mean, I suppose this is, to some extent, the research are coming out in me, but when you get to see all these different perspectives, and I suppose my background um, is doing interviews, and I suppose learning about the experience of people, but it's an absolute treasure chest from a researcher's perspective, getting to hear all of the different insights from the different people who've been on this podcast. Well, thank you very much for that. And listen, it's all down to our guests agreeing to come on and, and having a, a chat with us. So thank you. Kieran, um, we are 
what, 50, approaching 52 minutes into this. Uh, I couldn't believe my eyes when I looked at it there. It only seemed yeah. like 10 minutes, but anyway, um, they say time flies when you're having fun. So um, <clears throat> just, just I, I appreciate uh, on the theme of my last question, uh, trying to ask you to um, view life um, from a union's perspective, just very quickly as a follow-up to that question, um, how should unionists sell the benefits of staying within the union to people like myself and I suppose yourself and others? Um, is this going to be the shortest answer ever? <laughs> I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's St. Patrick's Day and we've seen Boris Johnson has put up a happy message about St. Patrick, but I mean, when you've got a Conservative government who... Again, it depends on what England wants. It's very difficult to spell out the benefits to anyone in Northern Ireland when there is the potential for you know, a United Ireland in the European Union. I think it is a case whereby the argument that the UK provides the greatest opportunity, I think that's difficult. I think, actually, I suppose when you look, for example, at the Solomon League in Covenant, for example, when the greatest argument for staying in the Union is the material well-being and the civil and religious freedoms. I don't think there's anyone who kind of has seen the history of Ireland and couldn't say that arguments made by unionists at that point weren't accurate. When you look, for example, at you know how the Catholic Church, which was the greatest fear of unionism at that time, how that came to prominence, the arguments made by unionists back in the 1910s, they were very strong and they were appropriate. But I suppose the question now is, can those same arguments be made today? Are the civil and religious freedoms best protected by being in the UK? Or if it is a case whereby, and as you mentioned in terms of having a new constitution, if there is a specific article in a new Irish constitution which states that the civil and religious freedoms of people of an Ulster British background, they will be protected, that if it is a case whereby people that is being impinged in any way that they could go to, you know, the national court or being in the European Union, they could go to the European Court of Justice. I think that that is a really strong argument for unity. And I suppose as someone who's lived in the South all their lives, I guess it's difficult, you know, we don't have the NHS, don't have obviously aspects, you know, I suppose bringing it back to the Conservative governments, we haven't had aspects like the bedroom tax, which again is something that the Conservative government brought in. And that is something, you know, I suppose I don't think representatives from the North, if they ever vote and if they are completely opposed to it, if the Conservatives have enough MPs, it will go through whatever. So I think, I suppose it's tough for me to say what are the big benefits of the union because I've never, you know, lived within the union. But I suppose there are many aspects which I think, at a positive level, that there has been changes in the South which can, I think, make it more welcoming to people from a unionist background. Okay. Kieran, integrated education, is it the way forward in any New Ireland? Now, I, I, that's a very big subject, this. And the reason why I bring it up and probably will continue to bring it up as our podcasts develop is because, you, you know, the, each, I suppose, religion has uh, can offer great benefits to, to our young. But, you know, is there a potential that we are, I suppose, you know, um, I'm struggling for the word here, but are, are, are we kind of boxing off our youth at the ages of four and five and pigeonholing them and nearly stereotyping them into, you know, a divisive 
society by by educating them separately. Now, now religion obviously arms our children, um, and being educated through different, um, you know, Catholic schools or whatever, you know, it, it arms them emotionally and intellectually and and in various other ways as they go to travel around the world. But you know, I'm talking about at a more raw level. Is is it nearly? Are we nearly segregating? their hearts and minds at such an early age? And what, I suppose, what's your thoughts on, on it? Yeah, I suppose it's a very tough question. Like, uh, my sister, for example, is a teacher in a secondary school in Dublin, Belvedere, which uh, is a Jesuit school, and it teaches them about compassion, competence, conscience, which is, you know, a very important message, I think, that everyone could learn from. But I suppose, and again, from the Southern perspective, whereby 90% of the students are... Uh, I suppose patron, uh, the Catholic Church's patron of them and I suppose as we've seen over the last few weeks and months in terms of what came out with the mother of baby homes from a certain perspective there is definitely a big thing pushed on trying to break that link between church and state which I think is positive but then when you look at the north and as you mentioned if it's a case whereby you've got kids who from the age of 4 to 18 because they're in you know either a Catholic school or a Protestant school, never come into contact with uh, someone from the other community and that it's not until kind of they go to college that they, that they meet other people. I suppose, and it's been mentioned, that there can be a bit of a culture shock. So I think that's one aspect whereby integrated education would definitely be a big benefit again. I haven't gone through the Northern education system, so I can't speak too much about it. But I think there would be clear benefits of ensuring that people, I suppose, network and that they've got a greater understanding of, I suppose, maybe, you know, specific things like the other communities, you know, culture and heritage, that they're able to see firsthand what it's like by speaking to them rather than hearing about it from other people. And that, that could then maybe lead to some, you know, misinformation or other aspects like that. I suppose uh, if it's a case whereby maybe there are certain aspects where people rather that they have, you know, Catholic schools or Protestant schools that might be too much in favour of integrated education. I think more so, if that is the case, there needs to be integrated society whereby, if it's a case where they're in different classrooms, for example, that they still have the same opportunities in terms of being able to have something like a combined school team for soccer and rugby or GA or something like that, or combined lessons and stuff like arts and music and dance. I suppose... The most important thing is ensuring that there is connections within the social network and that it's not a case whereby, you know, people are closed off from one another and they don't have the opportunity. I think ensuring that they have the ability to communicate and learn more about one another, I think that is probably the most important aspect when it comes to education and young people and how they grow up in a society. Mm-hmm. I suppose the way that it was put to me, it, it's, it would be about breaking down barriers as opposed to putting putting them up. But exactly. again, it's, it's, a, it's a very complex subject and no doubt a vast array of people will have um, a multitude of different uh, views and opinions on it. Kieran, I, I genuinely have... Ten more questions to ask you here, but um, due to um, our time constraints here, we're approaching an hour. And I'm unfortunately going to have to skip a few, but um, with your permission, we'll bring you back on in six months or a year and, and, see, oh, and see how life has changed. Kieran, a question we ask everyone, and I'll ask you it. What is required to create a truly shared Ireland, in your opinion? So I suppose this kind of comes back to my... Uh 
initial area of research. So in environment policy, my focus is on something called a just transition. So as you all know, in terms of reducing damage to the environment and reducing emissions, there needs to be a reduction of the level of fossil fuel gases being created and aspects like oil and gas and coal. Mm -hmm. But one of the most important questions is if there is a shift away from these uh, working processes, what is done to make sure that the workers and the communities and the regions who are dependent on coal mining for employment, for example, what can be done to make sure that no community is felt like they're left behind? So I think that that message is really important in terms of a shared Ireland, that no group and no society feel as if that they're being left behind. So what can be done to ensure that takes place? Well, one of the big things is ensuring that their voices are heard, that there is social dialogue. So making sure that people do not feel as if that decisions are being made without their acceptance, that they are being forced to partake in any activities that they don't want to do, that I suppose in the case of employment that they are supported if there is a need for a transition away. So I think ensuring that there is social dialogue is the most important thing, that people have their voices heard. I think what is really needed, I think we meant beforehand in terms of health and employment and education, justice has to be to the centre of a new and shared Ireland. There has to be a just transition reunited Ireland. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very interesting, Kieran, and, and I agree that there must be people having a voice is imperative in, in any society, but particularly one that's coming out of, uh, you know, conflict and and one with as many different issues that we have. Um, people, um, people not having a voice creates frustration and, and ultimately, I suppose, that creates anger and and we all know what can happen when 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 that happens, you know. So again, a very complex subject. Kieran, who would you like to see as a future guest on our podcast series? Can I ask you? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think someone not actually from Ireland, but I think maybe Brandon Lewis, Secretary of State from Northern Ireland. I suppose <laughs> uh, you know he, he's a fairly elusive man now to get an answer from. But looking at okay, uh, don't Brandon, wor- don't worry. <laughs> we'll we'll set that up after this phone call. That shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wish it would be that easy, Kier. But um, listen, we will endeavour to um, make your wish come through, as they say. Right. Who inspires you in life, Kier? Well, I suppose in the context of COVID at the minute, when you look at the workers in the front line in terms of um, healthcare, doctors and nurses, and my sister is a teacher, and I've got a lot of friends from college who are teachers as well. So I think the work that they are putting in now more than ever I think it's very inspiring mm-hmm. I suppose all we can do is just hope and wish them the best very good very good um, just um, this is coming now to uh, the end of the podcast and um, because you have listened seemingly to all of our podcasts uh, <laughs> For a lot of people, this is uh, the most awkward part of, of the conversation. So, you know, a few questions I'm sure that I'm about to ask you. Starting with the first one. If you could invite three people to your fictional dinner party, who would they be and why? Uh, so the first one I go for, so I'm a big Manchester fan, which could be more divisive than Anthony has to say in the interview. But... Well, it, it is considering I'm a Liverpool fan, but anyway, go on. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a good thing I didn't mention it at the start, so... <laughs> But um, I think I'd have to go with Alex Ferguson. I mean, the success he has year upon year, I don't think, I mean, it's difficult to see how that can be replicated over such a long length of time. I mean, you've got managers like you know, Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp at the minute who've you know, 
done very well over recent years, but could you see them doing it still being in that position you know, in 15 or 20 years' time as he did? You know, it's difficult to see. And I think he was certainly, you know, one of the kinds. The longevity of 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 his tenure and the success that he brought with it, um, even from a Liverpool fan, I have to admire it. So yes. Yeah. So I guess uh, for my second one, I would go for uh, he's an Irish American talk show host, uh, Conan O'Brien. So yes. he's someone I think he's very funny, very witty. Someone who I've always liked ever since I started watching his you know television programs and his podcasts. Now, so I think he definitely had a lot of wit. Mm-hmm. And, and and all good conversations need a bit of wit exactly that's it okay your third and final choice no doubt be um you're not going to disappoint our listeners and you're going to include a femaleness i know i am of course so <laughs> i'm going to go with, uh, i'm going to go with mary robinson so former president of ireland yes. and she's someone who over recent years has put a big emphasis on climate justice which i think is an aspect which is very important when it comes to environment policy, making sure people have their voices heard, which I think is crucial. Very good. Uh, a very interesting lineup, and one that I would, as I say to everybody, like to get crashed, but um, very good, Kieran. Um, if you could be anyone for just one day, Kieran, who would they be and why? Uh, I think I would have to go with Boris Johnson, just to know, like, you know, is it an act or is everything he does, is it real, you know? <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing here. That's impolite of me. Sorry. Right, we'll, we'll skip along. This is my last question. I was going to ask you to tell me a joke, but I suppose I wouldn't put you in that position or I wouldn't be so cruel because you've been such a nice guest. But then on the other hand, I was thinking, oh, go on ahead. Why not? So I'm going to, put, I'm going to put you in the spot. <laughs> tell me a joke. Uh, so we've talked a lot about healthcare uh, in this episode. So who's the nicest guy in the hospital? Who's the nicest guy in the hospital? I the, the um, ultrasound guy. Sorry, say that again. The, the ultrasound guy. <laughs> the ultrasound guy. <laughs> that actually is quite funny. So yes, yes. Okay. Well, and, and by the way, well done. You you nearly think I told you about these before. Uh, you came yeah. out with you came out with that one pretty quick. <laughs> so well done. I'm I'm actually gonna re- I'm gonna remember that and, and tell it to my nephew later on. Kieran Harrell, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, and I genuinely mean that. You've been a mind of uh, information. Um, you're clearly um, uh, know what you're talking about. Uh, good luck with uh, PhD, and um, if you wouldn't mind, I'll officially now ask you: Could you maybe, if you have a spare moment, pen another article or two for us in the future, not too distant future, hopefully. Oh yeah, fingers crossed. I'm sure. I mean, it's an excellent platform, so I'd be delighted to get my thoughts and any ideas I have out there. Great, great. Thank you, um, folks. Thanks for listening, and for anyone that would like to um, listen to our back catalogue of podcasts, or indeed view any of our articles, um, like the one or two Kieran has written for us, if you simply log on to www.sharedireland.com and you can navigate your way through the menu bar and you will see little videos, podcasts, articles from people from right across the political spectrum because we believe as a platform that it's important to give everyone a voice and while we won't agree on the big fundamental questions 
but it's important to learn how to disagree respectfully. So thank you once again, Kieran, and thank you for listening all. Um, stay tuned, and we'll have another podcast with you shortly. Bye-bye.